0: judgment and God's wrath but because of the grace of God they are now trusting in what Jesus did to take the price of their uh, sin on the cross they're placing their trust in Jesus they want to turn from their sin and follow Jesus so baptism is them saying look the old me has died with Jesus on the cross spiritually the old me in fact is dead and then we put him under the water the old me is dead and buried and when they come up out of the water, it's a picture of them being a new person in Christ. Dead and buried, and now I'm a new person in Christ, raised to walk with Jesus. So this morning, Ezekiel Carr, he's come to follow the Lord in baptism this morning. Alright, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's been coming here to our church for a while now. And maybe it was about a year ago when he and I first talked and uh, about baptism and his desire for it. I know he had uh, talked previously with some others about baptism before him and his family started attending our church. So the Lord's been at work in him for a while. Uh, So fast forward about a year, here just a few weeks ago, he he wanted to come and talk again. And uh, and after seeing not only that persistence, it's one thing for for someone to be persistent about the desire to be baptized, but also his family began to observe uh, some fruits of repentance in his life as well. And, and so that gave us more confidence that not only did he understand the Gospel truly, but that uh, he had been born again. And so we, based on what he's telling us and based on what we're beginning to see, we believe Ezekiel has, has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And so what we're about to do right now is, is not to make him born again. I hope you all understand that. Being born again is something that takes place in someone's heart. Baptism doesn't add to that. Baptism expresses that. Amen? Get it wrong, and you're not going to be right with God. Baptism expresses what God's already done through Jesus Christ. Amen? So, Ezekiel, I'm going to let you tell these folks what you told me. Ezekiel, do you believe that you sinned against God and deserve His punishment for your sin? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is God's Son? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin and rose again? Ezekiel, do you hate your sin and do you want to follow Jesus and let Him be King of your life? Yes. Amen. Turn like this for me. Ezekiel, based on your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alright. Well, there's room at the cross for you. And the first thing you need to do is you need to turn from your sin. You need to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would love to talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. You also, in doing so, you need to follow the Lord in baptism to express what God's done and so in obedience to what He's called us to do. So we'd love to talk with you about that as well. So this morning, um, we'd encourage you to seek out that opportunity later in the service or, or after the service is over. Right now... Uh, I want to let you know about one thing. Then we're going to watch a brief video about a study coming up that we're going to do in our church. And also, our youth are going to begin tonight. Nick uh, uh, is going to come and share an announcement about that in a moment after this video. But first of all, tonight, there will not be any evening service here tonight. There will be uh, activities here tonight, youth activities. There will be meeting tonight. But no evening service because of our Greater Wabash Baptist Annual Meeting that will be in Grayville. And so the information about that is in your bulletin if you'd like to attend that. So right now we're going to play this video and Nick's going to come and share this announcement.
1: Good morning again. So we've got a little short section of scripture I'm going to read before this. It's Psalm 88:13 through 18. It says, but I, O Lord, have cried out to you for your help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. I wonder if we stop and take note of how much we complain And how much we whine. I know um, whenever I um, was looking at this song and trying to come up with what to uh, put before it, we were sitting back in the sound booth and I said, what's a really dark psalm? And uh, Nick said, Psalm 88's really dark. And so I went to Psalm 88 and it was perfect. Um, Because, I mean... For what we have, the joy that we have, and Joyful Joyful is such the perfect song for her to play before this because we have that joy and the hope in Christ and the fact that he died for our sins that what could we complain about? That we have the greatest thing that there is in the universe and yet we complain about the little things. I know um, this past week, um, me and Pastor and Deanna and um, Nick, and Ryan, and several others, we went to uh, a conference in Nashville, and there were some really amazing musicians there. And one thing they kept saying was, "We really hope this encourages you," and uh, it did. It was it was really awesome. We got a lot of really good stuff out of it, but I also came back a little bit discouraged at first because. When you go to these conferences, you see these people that are up there that do it so well. And uh, their, uh, their voices are perfect. They write these amazing songs and you think, how could I ever measure up to them? And uh, Satan was using that against me until I started practicing this song. And me and Steve had already talked about the fact that we were going to do this song as the special music today. And uh, it still didn't click in my head with all those doubts and with all that complaining and whining the title of the song is my worth is not in what I own my worth is not in my voice my worth is not in how I can lead these songs my worth is in Christ my worth is not in what I own not in the strength of flesh and own, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed. At the cross I rejoice in my Redeemer Greatest treasure Wellspring of my soul I will trust in Him no other My soul is satisfied in Him alone As, I keep changing the pages, sorry. Summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. I will not boast in wealth or might. For human wisdom's fleeting light But I will boast in knowing Christ At the cross Two wonders here that I confess My worth and my unworthiness My value fixed, my ransom paid At the cross I rejoice in my Redeemer Greatest treasure Wellspring of my soul I will trust In him no other My soul is Satisfied in him alone Sing that with me And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other, my soul is satisfied in Him alone.
0: So again, it's. I'd hope uh, you'd take that on the back of your sermon outline. The words of that. Look at it this week. I pray over it even, and uh, and in your devotion time as a couple, or as alone, or as a family, that you might uh, try to sing that with your family, or just sing it to the Lord, and and uh, look it up on YouTube if you need to to, to catch the tune again. But uh, some rich, rich lyrics there to remind us of what's really valuable is who who we are in Jesus. Well, this morning I'd ask you to take your Bible with me again and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's page eleven sixty in the pew Bibles that we have. The Bible's close to you, underneath the chair you're sitting in, or close to you. Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven. I'm going to ask you to stand again as we honor God in reading His Word together. Ephesians chapter two. And I'll begin reading at verse eleven. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Let's pray together. We thank you, God, that what we have sung this morning in this service is the gospel, and we've sung about Christ and Father, we thank You that our worth is not in what we own, but who we are in Christ Jesus. Pray that You would reveal the weightiness and glory and wonder and beauty of that right now to us as we look at Your Word together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And looking at this passage of Scripture and thinking about preaching a few a few messages I've uh, been praying about it for some time, several weeks actually, about the church. Uh, the Lord led me back to this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. It's thought that it's been said by different commentators and preachers that this passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22, are probably the most important passage in all of the Bible about the church. And so we're spending a few Sundays on it as the Lord leads. I've given this definition of what the church is. A lot of people have a definition of the church, but here's... Here's my attempt at a definition based on what Scripture says. The church, comprised of all people who are true believers, true believers in Jesus, is God's holy dwelling place. Now, I think that definition, like any human definition, even though it's based on Scripture, needs clarity. And I'm reminded right now, here beginning tonight, in our Catalyst Student Ministry, which we're excited about, they're going to begin this Apostles' Creed study And we're going to begin the same study next Sunday night with the adults here on Sunday evenings beginning next Sunday night, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed has been around for centuries and has been used across denominational lines to express orthodox, when I say orthodox, some of the main things that we believe, the most important things we believe about the Bible and about the Gospel. However, it is a creed in and of itself with human words and it needs clarity. And so, for example in the definition that I'm giving you about what is the church. And it my definition starts off, the church comprised of all people who are believers. The church. In the Apostles' Creed, there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that says that we believe in several things, and one of the things it says we believe in is the holy Catholic church. Well, that's a very confusing phrase for many of us. It uses a little c. And what the word Catholic actually means is universal. It means the church, which is expressed in this statement here, what is the church? The church, we're not just talking about First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel, we're talking about the church composed of all believers from all time. And so in that Apostles' Creed statement, we're not affirming the Roman Catholic Church there. There's a little C there. I'd like to really change that when I say that, Creed, if I'm going to, because it's confusing. I don't affirm the Roman Catholic Church. don't believe they preach the true gospel, which leads to other clarity that's needed in the Apostles' Creed. What is the church? The church is comprised of all people. Well, that needs clarity because not everybody's part of the church. All people who are true believers. True believers in what? True believers in Jesus Christ. And so the Apostles' Creed affirms certain truths here. But what we're going to be doing in our study on Sunday nights with the youth, and also as I go through that study on Sunday evenings, is look at what it says, but also what it doesn't say, so we understand what it is that we believe the Scripture teaches about the church, about salvation. What is the church? The church is comprised, comprised of all people who are true believers in Jesus Christ, believing not just facts, but trusting. It's a belief that trusts and repents and relies upon the work of Jesus. So the church, comprised of all true believers, all people who are true believers, is, and here's the wonder of it, God's holy dwelling place. And we see it in verse 22, that this church, if you look at it in verse 22 of chapter 2, is God's dwelling place for God, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is building this church, not this building I mentioned last Sunday. We don't, we really don't go to church. Well, we use that terminology. I know I do as well. But we, we go to meeting with the church. We are the church, right? And so what a blessing and privilege and joy and something not to be taken for granted that on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, that the church, the p- true believers, in whom God dwells, is gathering together. Why would we want to forsake that? The dwelling place of God is corporately meeting together. And so we meet with the church. We meet to worship God as the church. The church, you who are true believers in Jesus Christ, get this, you are God's holy dwelling place. You are the dwelling place of God. Now how does that come to be? How is it that we get to be part of this church that we would be the dwelling place of God? Paul says two times in verse 11 and 12, if you look at your Bible in chapter 2, he says, remember, he says again in verse 12, remember, He wants them to remember this, the wonder of this. You remember what it was like to be lost, to be outside on the outside looking in, not a part of this? Remember, remember what God has done. And so he prays twice in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Tim preached on the last Sunday night, I believe in Ephesians chapter 3. He's he's praying and he's saying, oh God, I want them to know. I want these Ephesian believers to know the the breadth and width and height and depth, the dimensions of the church and what it means to be part of the church of the love of Christ. How wonderful it is. That we are in Christ Jesus, that we are part of the church, that we are God's holy dwelling place. That they wouldn't just say to themselves, well, that's nice. No, it's not nice. It's the greatest thing, as Tim said, in the universe to be God's holy dwelling. He created the universe, yet He dwells in us. And so He's praying, God, let let them, let them get this because that's going to lead them to persevere and endure. There's wonderful mystery about this intention that we must hold if we are to see the wonder of what it means to be Christians, to be true believers, to be saved, to be part of His church. Imagine with me I had a a box up here that I'd created. We We can't even create a box, right? But a lot of people think, have a way of thinking in which this is their box. This is how you think. And everything has to fit in your box, logically. If it doesn't make sense, then, then you're going to make it make sense or you're going to reject that because it doesn't make sense to you. And a lot of people want to do that with a Bible. Here's their way of thinking. Here's their box right here. Here's, here's how I think. And so when I read the Bible, the Bible has to fit into my box. I've got to make it fit in my box. If it doesn't make sense to my box then I reject I reject that or I, or I twist it and make it say what I think it needs to say in order to, to make sense to me. God has to fit in my box. And yet God's going to create in my mind so that I can think with logic and reasoning. And there's some things in this world that God has revealed to us in Scripture that are going to be beyond our understanding. So what I'm trying to help us understand, what does it mean to be part of the church as we explore the dimensions of this question, the answer to this question, the components of how God has built His church and what He's done to bring us into His church and make us His holy dwelling place. There are things that are here that are meant to blow our minds. It's not going to fit logically always into our box and make sense to us. It's not supposed to. Only a big vision of a holy God is going to lead you to endure. When your husband says, I don't love you anymore. It's only a big vision of the sovereignty of God and of His grace that He's shown in your life and remembering at what cost it it took to bring you into His church. It's only that that's going to lead you into endure. A vision of a small God, of of a gospel that's not quite the gospel... It's not going to need you to persevere and endure when you find out you lose your job or you got cancer or your children are rebelling or whatever it is. So, how do we get to be part of this? We need to explore the dimensions of God's blueprint for His church so that Paul, as he's praying, he's saying, Lord, I want them to, want them to know the height and breadth and width and, and length and all the dimensions of the love of Christ so that they persevere and they, they keep believing and they keep serving. One of them is this. Number one, I mentioned last Sunday, the illogical building site for the church is unholy ground. One of the things that we need to keep in mind so that we see the wonder of the gospel and what it means to be saved is truly wonderful is just how unholy we are about how much we really did need to be saved. God's going to build this church. He's got this plan in mind. Before the foundation of the world. This building. His dwelling place. His dwelling place is in heaven. Isaiah saw it and said, Holy, holy, holy. is what the seraphim and cherubim said as they covered their eyes. And he said, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people that's unclean as well holy God. He sees the heavenly holy dwelling place of God, yet God says, I'm going to make my dwelling place on earth. In fact, I'm going to make my dwelling place in unholy people. The illogical building site for God's church is unholy ground. Because you're unholy. I'm unholy. I'm sinful. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of this world. So God didn't look out upon the span of all creation and upon all people on the earth and say, I think I'll choose that person to be part of my church because I'm so impressed. That looks like the perfect place to build my house. Not true about anybody here, right? He looks out and all are unclean. All are like filthy rags. All are sin. All are dead in sin. All are on a, on a like we sung this morning, we're, we're running a hellbound race as far as we can, as hard as we can, and we don't even know it, we don't even care. And God says, I want them. That, I, that's the place I'm going to build my house. And if you've, got a, if you've got a low view, or a high view, depending on how you think about it if you don't understand how depraved and sinful and dead in sin man is, then the, then, then the, then the beautiful diamond of the treasure of the gospel is not going to shine as brightly if, it, if it's in a light background, you see. But if it's in a dark black background and all of a sudden there's this beautiful treasure shining even greater because it's so black in the background of our life, then we see, wow, look what God has done. He's chosen to build His house upon unholy ground of which I am a sinner. Number two is the improbable vision for the church. So number one is the illogical building site for the church's unholy ground. Number two, the improbable vision for the church. What did God vision? The improbable vision for the church is a holy people. Think about it. He's going to build His church on unholy ground, but His vision for the church is to have a holy people. We're not just saying a little bit holy, but I mean holy as he is holy, there's a holiness without which we will see the Lord. And that's his vision. That's why I say it's an improbable vision. Not likely to happen. In fact, if it depends upon man, it's not going to happen. Because we're dead in sin, right? We're not, we're not on a, a ventilator about to die with morphine keeping us alive and easing the pain. We're dead in sin, We can't make ourselves holy. We wouldn't even if we were, spirits, were somehow alive. So the improbable vision for the church is a holy people. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Look at what he did. Chapter 1, verse 4. We have to go back here. Even as he chose us, so he's choosing his building site, us who are us, unholy ground, sinners, Dead in sin, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, why did He do that? What's it say? What's your Bible say? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, theological building site, unholy ground. The improbable vision, impossible vision if it depends upon us, a holy people—that's what he wants. He wants a holy, holy and blameless, perfect. How's this going to happen? Look at chapter one, verse three. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Key phrase, folks: in Christ. We are in the flesh, spiritually speaking, dead in sin. But he chose us in Christ. We're not chosen in the flesh as if we could remain in a sinful flesh, but he's chosen to place us spiritually in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ to be with him. Chapter 1, verse 13, or chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. you see that? In Christ Jesus. We were in Nashville at that conference that Tim mentioned this week, and I was walking back to the hotel by myself to do some studying for the, in the afternoon for today for the sermon. And as I walked, uh, there's a lot of the homeless, the Nashville Rescue Mission, I've preached there a few times. Uh, I was close by, and there's a lot of homeless people you walk past uh, one person I walked by asked, asked for money and so forth and another person I, I noticed was walking in front of me and looked into a trash can and got out a styrofoam cup then walked into the gas station and got some ice with that styrofoam cup they dug out of the trash can and walked into the bathroom and filled it full of water. And I thought about the poverty and, and how many of those folks are in those situations probably because of uh, mental illness or or drug addiction and so forth and of course I began to think about how blessed I am that I, you know, that's not me how blessed I am to have have my family I mean so many earthly blessings but then I began to think about even if I didn't have my wife, my family, even my health as a believer what do I have what's chapter 1 verse 3 say blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with what every spiritual blessing Lose it all in a worldly sense. But as a believer, I have every spiritual blessing. Somebody help me preach this morning. Amen. Every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 4 says this. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us how? On what basis? He chose us in Him. So you get the theme here, in Him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Apart from God's gracious choice, we are in the flesh and unholy. There's a, a wonderful hymn that may be unknown to many of us, unfortunately, called the church's one foundation, similar to the one we opened up with this morning. And One of the lyrics of that hymn says, from, from heaven, Jesus, talking about, from heaven He came and sought her to be His Holy bride. It reminds me of what Ephesians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 5 says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means to set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now listen to verse 27, chapter 5. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Christ lay down His life, give Himself up for the church? Because He wanted to make the unholy ground holy. It happens in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. So we see the illogical building site for the church and the improbable vision for the church as a holy people. Key point here, one reason it's driving me to preach a series of messages. Remember, He's chosen us to be His holy dwelling place. We're on holy ground. He, he, the, the vision is we're going to be, be a holy people. One day that process of sanctification is going to be complete, but it's not yet. But as God has called us as His church to be His holy dwelling place, let us strive to be what we are in Christ by grace Let us strive to be holy. Going back to the passage on the scripture about husbands. Love your wives as Christ does the church. We strive to love our wives in a way that's unique and set apart from the world so that our marriages will be saying something about how Christ loves His church. If we are God's holy dwelling place, then when we meet together corporately as a church and we live together as, a, as what's known as First Baptist Church in Mount Carmel, Illinois, there must be a striving together of holiness as a body of believers, a willingness to go to one another and talk to one another about sins and shortcomings in our lives and encourage us, one another, when we see evidence of grace as we seek to be salt and light in the world. There's a story about a, a house out west, I've told this a few weeks ago, it's called the Bowen 747 Wing House, some of you have heard of it maybe, and I saw it on some TV show not long ago. They were building a, a house out of the wing from a Bowen 747, up in the mountains, an impossible location, not the, not the ideal location. So you can just imagine what they had to do to get the ground ready for that house up in the mountains. They had to build a road. They had to get helicopters to fly materials in and parts in. They had to have a a, a, just a wonderful architect to design these blueprints. And and you ask yourself, why do this? Why go to all the trouble? And I don't know. I didn't get to ask that question of that builder. But I would think uh, for pleasure's sake, something they wanted to do, something they wanted to live in. Maybe show off. Now think about that with the church. Here's this unholy ground. He wants to make them an unholy people. What is the purpose? What is the infinite purpose for the church? Number three, the infinite purpose for the church is the praise of His glory. Why do this? For pleasure. He wants to dwell in these people. Chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Look at your Bible in chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ why did He do that? Did He do that on the basis of something about us? Something we've done? No. Predestined according to what? For adoption of His sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. There, there was a purpose for Him building this church, this house. He had a purpose in doing that. Verse 11 talks about it. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He has a will. He has a purpose. He has willed us to be part of His church. What was the purpose of God willing this to happen? Why go to all the trouble for the praise of His glory? Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace. You see that? To the praise of His glorious grace. That's why He does it. Look again in chapter 1, verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ, so that why? We might be to the praise of His glory. And then look again in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? Do you see God's purpose? You see His infinite purpose for building this church. Ultimately, was the praise of His glory. God's choice had nothing to do with the quality of our lives, but everything to do with the quantity of His grace. Now, I want you to look back in chapter 1, verse 6, and notice that. Verse 6 says this, To the praise of His glorious grace. Well, there's a component here I want to clarify for you. See, well, God builds this house for Himself too. Uh, he just wants to get glory for Himself, and He does. So are we just pawns in the game here? No. We go to a football game, you go to the Aces game, you like what you're seeing on the field, you cheer. Yeah! Go! Run him over, Blake! Let's go! Yeah! You cheer because you're delight. You praise what you see happening on the field because you're enjoying seeing it, right? You praise, you cheer, because you enjoy what you see what you're a part of. Notice it says in chapter 1, verse 6, look at it, to the praise of His glorious grace. Who's doing the praising? So it means something with the capacity to see the display of His glory is enjoying it. So yes, God builds His church. He builds us. He makes us part of His church for His glory. That's His infinite purpose. But it's to the praise of His glorious grace. So we, we praise Him for His grace. We praise Him for His glory. We've been doing that this morning, hopefully because we enjoy it. We're thankful for it. We delight in it. It is a tre- the treasure to us. It's to the praise of His glorious grace and we get to be part of it. We're wrapped up in it. This is His eternal purpose. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 says this, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that He's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there was an eternal purpose that He had. That this mystery of the gospel that's been unfolded through the church, verse 10 of chapter 3, might now now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I think that would at least include angels. And when angels look, and they look, and they see unholy sinners, rebellious sinners, on their way to hell, they don't care about it, they're dead in sin, they can't do anything about it, but God, in His grace, from His eternal plan for His glory, reaches down and takes a sinner and puts them on this road who love God and he's making them holy the angels see that they see God's wisdom unfolding through the church people being saved people being made holy that are unholy and they praise God for it they're enjoying what they see what's the bible say when one sinner repents what do the angels do they rejoice they praise God So God's doing this for His glory and that He's being glorified by the angelic beings, but also us. What's it tell us in Rome? What's the picture look like in the throne room in Revelation chapter 5? Verse 5 says this. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't be sad. You're about about to understand, he says, what what it is that God's done in here at the end of time to ransom people for himself. Verse 9, you're familiar with these verses. Verse 9 of chapter 5 of Revelation says this. They sang a new song saying to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What are they doing? They're singing! Why are they singing? Are they sad when they're singing? They're singing out of delight, out of joy. They're glorifying God and they're happy to do it. They delight in what they're seeing. You've ransomed for God a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and to of God and they shall reign on the earth. And they say later with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might to honor and glory and blessing. Yes, the infinite purpose for the church is to praise of His glory, His glory and our joy, our eternal joy. One last component I'll share with you. The angels, they see unholy sinners being made holy because of the grace of God. God's glorified in it, but that's not the only thing they see. Chapter 1 of Ephesians verse 9 says this, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the focus of everything is, is, is that this all unfolds in Christ and God's glorified in that. So everything's going to be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. or there some things on earth that's not united. And what the angels are going to observe being unfolded through the wisdom of God is that on earth, Gentiles and Jews are not reconciled. They don't like each other. They don't want to be around each other. He's going to make them part of the church. He's going to make a third race called the church where there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Number four, finally is the incompatible materials for the church. What's this church going to be made out of? This unholy ground is Jews and Gentiles. All nations. All nations. You remember Solomon's temple in the Old Testament? Can you picture the the building materials being brought outside uh, where they're going to build that temple there in Jerusalem and being stacked up? Can you imagine materials being brought to build a building and it says hazardous waste and you've got uh, asbestos, something labeled as asbestos and things like that. Would you use that for building materials? Some building materials aren't used, meant to be building. It's dangerous. Some don't even go together. Well, here are Jews and Gentiles. They don't mix well. They're not meant to go together. But God, not only is he going to take sinners who are unholy and make them holy as part of His church, He's going to take Jewish and Gentile sinners and bring them together where they don't even think about those distinctions anymore and treat each other that way anymore. Why was the case? this is the case? Because there was a dividing wall of hostility. I'll, I just don't... I think... I want to fast forward. I want you to look at, in verse 14. Look at your Bible. For He Himself is our peace. Our peace. Paul was a Jew. He's writing to Gentiles. and He's saying, Gentiles... He is our peace. We have peace with Him. We also have peace with one another. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. You see that? Jews and Gentiles are both one, broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Look at this. Look at the last part of verse 15. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. One new man in place of the two. So what God does to further magnify himself is he not only takes sinners who are unholy and makes them holy as part of his church, but he takes Jews and Gentiles, both who are both as equally sinners, makes them holy and brings them together. So there's not a Jewish church over here, a Jewish people over here, and the church over here, or the Gentile church. There's not a Gentile church in the Israelite nation, No. He creates one new man. You see that? You see it in your Bible? One new man in place of the two. He creates a third race. Notice it says, He creates one new man in place of the two. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He's created something here. It's one of the reasons we worship on the first day of the week. It's when, it's when his work was accomplished. That's when he rested. That's when he rose again, just like Father rested when the creation was created. And he rested on the seventh day. We rest on the first day of the week. He's created a third race. He didn't just fulfill, remember Rodney King? Can we all just get along? He didn't fulfill Rodney's, Rodney King's wish that just Jews and Gentiles just get along. That's not what he did. He did more than that. He created a new race. Jews, Gentiles, and then there's the church of the living God. We don't even refer to one another those distinctions anymore. We're either in Christ Jesus or we're out of Christ Jesus. And this glorifies God. And the angels in heaven observe this. They observe that true unity, that oneness. God is glorified. So let me leave you with these points of application. Number one, racism has no place in the church. Racism has no place in the church. Now I say that as someone who grew up in East Tennessee who uh, used some words I shouldn't have used in in relation to other races when I was growing up and it took me joining the army, being exposed to other races for the first time to understand that that was sinful and wrong even though I was a professing believer. Now it makes me sick to my stomach and if you're somebody that goes around and you profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you make crude jokes about other races or you use the N-word or other type of words refer to other races, let this be a means of grace to you. That is sinful and that is wrong and it is sickening in the sight of our living God. I'm ashamed that I ever said such things or acted in such a way and teased about it. Racism has no place in the church. Anybody that comes to this church is welcome here assuming that they're not coming in to disrupt the church and nobody's welcome to be part of this church unless they've been born again i hope you understand the distinction we welcome anyone to attend this church but you can't be part of this church unless you've been born again as a member of this to be a member of this church racism has no place in the church that's a pretty straightforward application i think but secondly let me just say this. The issue is sin and the solution is Christ. The reason Jews and Gentiles didn't get along, and we talk more about it next Sunday, talks about a wall of hostility. The Jews were prideful because they had the law and they had all these this special revelation. They were prideful because of it. They looked down upon the Gentiles. And the Gentiles looked at the looked at the Jews, and they said, "They're just they're just prideful. Uh, they're strange. They're weird. And they just didn't get it. there was sin in the hearts of both of them. The core issue that they couldn't have peace. It mentions peace twice in verse fourteen and fifteen. That they didn't have peace with one another was because of sin. The issue is sin, and the solution is Christ. He's the one that brings peace. And so we look out and we hear about NFL players kneeling down today during the Star Spangled Banner. And we hear about Confederate statues being torn down or just different things that going on and ethnic racial issues in our own nation and so forth. Uh, you could think, well, we could get these different groups that represent Black Lives Matter or this, this group over here or the KKK or whatever, get them to sit down and just try to talk to them like men. And guess what? Men are sinners. And there is no... There is no solution to racial tension other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to issues that you have in your own life, you don't have peace. You don't have a peace means wholeness. You don't have a sense of wholeness in your marriage. You don't have a sense of peace and wholeness in your working relationships. The issue is not some counseling session, even though counseling can be helpful, right? I'm not saying not to go to it. But in that counseling, there should be some counsel that the the, the real issue here is sin. And the solution is Jesus Christ. Point people to Christ when they ask for your counsel and wisdom and advice about why they don't have peace in their life about different things. Number three, and David Platt mentioned that this week in a sermon he preached that we heard. Connect the blessing of God with the purpose of God. Let me just say it this way. We have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Amen? Every spiritual blessing. And it's very tempting to walk down the, downtown Nashville and think about how God's blessed me and, and think about how I'll have every spiritual blessing in Christ and just be in awe of that and come to church and sing about that and as we've done this morning, praise God for it. And we rightly so. But we must connect the blessing of Christ with the purpose of God. What's the purpose of God? That He might be... To, it's to the praise of His glory. And it's to the praise of His glory among all nations. Among all peoples. What I'm saying is, is if, we, if we're getting this, what the, the wonder and glory and majesty, I know that Casey was talking about in his Sunday school class this morning, the wonder of what it really means to be saved. And think about how holy God is, how sinful and far off we were, and how God has, God has saved us. That should lead us to being on mission for Christ. That it shouldn't take somebody up here yelling you need to talk to Jesus more talk to more people about Jesus and give more money no we just we just talk about Jesus and talk about how great the gospel is, and if you really get that, if you if you begin to understand the dimensions of the love of Christ, you're going to want to give. You're going to want to see other people. We were at this conference this week. We were we were at a, a, a concert by, the, by a group called the Gettys. They were singing. They were singing that song they wrote called "In Christ Alone." Many of you know that we sing it here at our church. A wonderful hymn. At one point we were singing, and I was thinking about the words of that, and I became so over, overcome with it, and I thought, man, I. I Christ is really the greatest treasure in the universe. Oh how it would how other people need out other people out there need to see that. Need to know the wonder and joy of this, and they don't, and as soon as we step out into the air of the Nashville streets that just sapped away by the whirliness in the atmosphere and the honky tonk music coming down the street being played. Man, if, we, if we're we overwhelmed and consumed with awe of what God and how God has blessed us in Christ, that we're part of this church, we ought to be a missionary church. We ought to be one taking the gospel to other people, right? Giving, going, sending, praying. Because we want Him to be glorified and others to experience the joy that we have. Bow your heads with me this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know who the Lord Jesus Christ is in a personal way, and what that means you've not been born again, we would love to talk with you about that. The Bible commands you to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust alone in Him. And after we sing this song this morning, man, I'd love to talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. Or you can come during this song and we can talk and pray even now and talk later if necessary. Father, right now as we bow and thank You and we think about the greatness of what You've done, Lord, I, I pray that there would be some nuggets of truth in this message, Lord, and from Your Word that would that would take root into our hearts and sustain us this week and lead us to endure, lead us to persevere. And there's so many around us that are throwing in the towel. They're giving up on different things in their life and maybe some are throwing in the towel in relation to Wanting to follow you, God, I pray, I pray that we would endure, Lord, because not because we—it's some demonstration of our own uh, attempt to be strong, but but we would endure because we we have everything in Christ. So, Lord, work that way in our hearts. Do what only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. We'll stand right now and we'll sing. We'll sing this closing hymn together this morning. And come of God speaking.
2: What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God. Until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens, trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We've been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there a popular professor and author C.S. Lewis responded to the Russian Cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him." shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life at the age of 30 he began his public ministry he attracted followers for three years he taught he healed and he made bold claims such as saying that he alone was the only way to God the religious and political leaders did not like these teachings they invoked a riot against Jesus they brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion the Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute God made him Who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. They took Jesus down from the cross, and they put Him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb, so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to Scripture, He rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The Gospel is the account of God writing Himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the Gospel.